These last few weeks, we've been in a series since what we call Vision Sunday, our, our sixth anniversary. Uh, we've been teaching a series on our vision and values, a vision and values series. And uh, people sometimes say, like, what's the vision of your church? And really the simplest answer to that is to know Christ and make Him known. If you want to know what this whole thing boils down to, it comes down to that. That's the essence of who we are. It's really, the essence of it is that we want to know Christ and we want to make Him known in the earth. And you know, as people connect into Liberty Church, into our community, we, our hope is that they're going to firstly follow Jesus. That's where it all begins. They're going to follow Jesus. They're going to thrive in community, flourish, in other words, in every area of life. And ultimately, they're going to make a difference. They're going to discover they've got gifts and talents, a calling, a purpose, a reason for being, and they're going to outwork that in the earth. These last few weeks, we've been really speaking about our values and uh, if you've been coming to Liberty for a while, you'd probably know them, that, that our five values as a church, because it doesn't just matter what you do, it also matters how you do it, right? And our values are the how, how we believe to love and to impact our city, a city that influences the world. And our five values are love, truth, freedom, family, and others. I love the tension between family and others, which Nicole spoke to so well the other week, because we don't want to just be a crowd, we want to be a community, and yet we want to be an inclusive community. We want to be a community that never forgets about others. Yeah. We're a community that believes for freedom, which Andy preached such a powerful message on, on freedom. That if we know the truth, the truth sets us free. But I had the opportunity tonight to speak to those first two values that I believe are the bedrock of all that I follow. And so tonight in the time that I have, if you take your notes, I want to speak on love and truth. Love and truth. The premise of my message is this, is that truth without love isn't received. But love without truth isn't real love. Truth without love isn't received because you know what? One of the beautiful things about love is that love builds a bridge. Love opens a door. Love makes a way for the human heart to receive truth. So oftentimes, truth without love just is never received. It falls on deaf ears. But on the other hand, if we have love with no truth, I question whether that is real love at all. Love and truth. Love and truth. I wonder if we stepped out of these doors after the service today, walked out into Union Square, and just started interviewing people at random with one question. If we said to people out in the square tonight, when I say church, what's the one word that comes to mind? How many of you think that could be a real interesting conversation? <laughs> that it could be uh, entertaining and at times offensive. It could be all kinds of things, right? That we would get a whole gamut of words back and not all of them would be positive words either. We would get all kinds of responses from people on the streets of our city. I wonder how many people we'd have to ask that question of before the pers first person would say love. When I say church, when you say church, I think of love. I wonder how many out of every hundred people would, would have that first reaction, their knee-jerk reaction to the word church be love. And yet, wouldn't that be an incredible testimony if we could achieve it? I mean, just lean into that for a minute. Imagine what it would be like if the overwhelming testimony of our church was love. I mean, there's a lot of things a church can be known for, and they're not necessarily bad. I mean, if people say, hey, you know, the preaching's good at that church, or you should hear the worship there, or, you know, they really do discipleship well, or any number of other things, solid theology, they're not bad testimonies. 
But what a testimony it would be, especially if it was coming from the mouths who've never even been through the doors to come into this place. If the word on the street, so to speak, were, I hear they really love people at that church. Wouldn't that be an awesome testimony? Jesus said in John 13, 35, he said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, Jesus said he wanted that to be the very hallmark of our lives individually and our lives collectively. We, the church, would be known by our love for one another, he said. In our discipleship, it it wouldn't just be seen in our fat Bibles and it wouldn't just be seen in our church going. It wouldn't just be seen in saying hallelujah after everything, although these are not necessarily bad things. But you hear that that's not what Jesus is going for. He's looking for something much richer, love. Oh man, let love be the mark that defines us as a people, that we love one another. Let love be our demonstration. Love, to be our demonstration that Christ is alive in us. You know, if you go to our church website, one of the things that I love is the very first thing that you see, first image and the first caption on it, it just says two smiling faces and it says, come as you are. I love that. A little, scroll down a little further, it says, be our guest. Why? Because we want people who are thinking about church, skeptical about church, wondering about coming to church. We want those people to get the message, this is a place where they're going to be loved, a place where they're going to be accepted, be our guest. And we love because Christ first loved us. Of course, one of the great tricks of the enemy is that he convinces people they've got to get it together before they can come. That's a clever lie right there because the point is we can't get it together (laughs) from the outside in. We're changed from the inside out. We used to have a neighbor that for years we'd invite to church and and more than once she said, if I ever came to church, the roof would fall in, which is her way of saying, I'm not holy enough to go to church. Well, isn't that a clever lie that we believe sometimes that our generation has believed that we've got to get it together before we come to Him when in fact we really can't get it together until we come to Him. We come just as we are. And then he changes us from the inside out. We love because Christ first loved us. And love opens the door to truth, but we'll get there later. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 13. It's a famous chapter. In fact, I'm going to read the whole whole passage because it's all about love. This is probably read at 50% of weddings in my estimation. (laughs) But I want you to think about it from a different context, about the definition of who we are as a community. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Which, by the way, by the way, has sadly too often been the testimony of the church at large. Is that because of the absence of love, all the truth and prophecy and words in the world has sounded like a clanging cymbal to those who miss the absence of love. I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom mysteries and all knowledge. If I have a faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, I give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, does not boast, it's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking, not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Anybody feeling convicted? (laughs) It's a high standard of love, right? Modeled on Christ. It says, love 
does not delight in evil, rejoices with the truth. You notice that love and truth coexist here. Love rejoices with truth. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be still. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, that when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked as a child, thought as a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. This is this beautiful journey we call sanctification. Shaped in his likeness by his goodness. And then it says, then, now I know in part, then I shall fully know even as I am fully known. And listen to this last verse. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. These three remain, it says. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You know, uh, this is kind of amazing to me that the Bible places something even above two incredibly other, incredibly important other things. Hope and faith are critical to our faith, right? Hope for a minute. How long can a person live without hope? I can't even be saved without faith. And yet the Bible places love even above the other two. It's a passage I've quoted many times, heard many times. And I started as I prepared this message to think about the power then of love that it would stand even above these two. As I reflected on this, how is it possible that love is greater even than hope and faith? Is, is I realized that love is the end to which hope and faith are only the means. Love is the thing that will endure. Love is the means to which Hope and faith are only the, the means. It's the ends. It's the end of everything. In other words, when we stand before God one day, perfected in Him and in His perfect love, you're not going to need hope anymore on that day. Hope will be fulfilled. You're not going to need faith anymore when you stand before Him face to face in all His glory. Amen? Hope, faith, they were the means to get you to His enduring, perfect, eternal love. You know, the old King James, we don't quote it too much around here because it requires subtitles, but the old King James, <laughs> it uses the word charity in place of love in this passage, which kind of shows you how in a couple of centuries, the word charity has lost a lot of its original power because it used to be synonymous with God's love, the word charity. And there's a commentary, famous commentary called the Matthew Henry. It says, when faith and hope are at an end, true charity will burn forever with the brightest flame. And where God is to be seen as he is and face to face, there, charity in its greatest height, there and only there, will it be perfected. Perfect love, perfected in his presence. This passage has all kinds of warnings within it. It ends with a description of the kind of the, the ultimate power, the greatness of love, but it contains a couple of warnings that you might have noticed as we read through. For instance, in verses 1 and 2 and 3, 
You know, Paul writing to the church at Corinth is listing all kinds of things that you might assume would be motivated by love, but actually can be devoid of love. He said, I can, I can speak with the tongues of angels. I can prophesy and have not love. I can discipline my body and have not love. I can even give to the poor is another example. He says you can give to the poor and have not love. And the Bible says we gain nothing. That's when we end up sounding like a clanging cymbal, a resounding gong to our world. Because why you do what you do matters too. It's not just about doing the right thing, is it? It's about drawing near to Him, Him becoming our heart and our motives, that we would do the right things for the right reason. Love should drive us. What if, what if we shared our faith just because of love? Don't you think it would make all the difference? What if we served people, if we gave, if we prayed? What if, you know, if we evangelized or we taught? Or, you know, as a parent, sometimes I'm challenged, what if I disciplined my children because of love? And not any other emotion that might occasionally come to the surface. <laughs> what a difference love makes. I was at a, a conference just a couple of weeks ago, a, a conference all about healing and healing ministry. And the guy uh, teaching the conference, Randy Clark, talked about how important love was for him as his motivation. As a person that's seen thousands of documented healings, he just spoke to the importance of love to he help him keep going through the times of disappointment. And the number of times he'd pray and somebody still passed away, he'd, he'd pray and, and there was disappointment and it seemed like his prayers had gone unanswered. He talked about the motivation of love that would get him to pick himself back up again from his disappointment or his unanswered questions and go again and pray again. See, love is sacrificial. It's not self-serving. It's patient, it's kind, it keeps no record of wrongs. That's what verses 4 to 8 lay out all these beautiful qualities of love. So what's our response to the world around us? Is it a response of love? When we see suffering in our world, is ours a response of love? And we in our day have 60 million or so refugees. Have we got a response of love? Even in the up close and personal, sometimes it's easier almost to imagine we have a loving response to people we see only in our news or social media feeds. But what about in the right here, right now, as we walk out those doors tonight? Is ours a response of love? I keep challenging myself not to become callous. You know, callous, my heart, calloused to the need in the world around me. I don't want to become one of those people. It's so easy to become like, I'm on a mission. I make no eye contact, head down, keep going, ignore the sign, don't feel anything, keep on going. I, I still want to have a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. It's maybe not every time, in every moment, for every person, but I don't ever want to get to a place where the Holy Spirit can't say to me, Paul, be interruptible today. Stop, sit, talk, help, give, pray, do something. Because over and over and over, Jesus was moved with compassion. In other words, compassion for Jesus was not just a feeling. It was a feeling that resulted in tangible action. If I could go there for a minute, I actually think, you know, we live in clearly turbulent times. I think that's an understatement, but it's an interesting time to be alive. Let's just say that. But, you know, so many people have forsaken, forsaken love in the current climate. And I don't just mean at one end of the ideological or political spectrum. I mean, really, in all directions. I'm astounded at times how people seem to have thrown love out the window and, and oftentimes even in the name of love seem to have become really mean. Is anybody else noticing those contradictions at times? Like, what is happening? Why is love so angry? You know, uh, 
you know, all kinds of things go out the window and we may be hiding behind our social media feeds or our posts or our comments or, you know, our blogs, because when I blog, I'm an expert on everything, right? Then I can hide behind all of that and just be a mean, mean person. Like empathy went out the window. Like my following Jesus wasn't for this subject because I'm passionate about this. I'll be kind to you on something else. Right? I can be kind to you as long as we agree. See, agreement should never be a precondition of love. Can we go there for a minute? Since when did agreement become a precondition of love? I've got so many people that I love that I passionately disagree with. That's what makes it fun to be alive. Come on. We can have unity without uniformity. Did you hear that? We can have unity without uniformity. We don't all have to see things the same way. In fact, that's the beauty of the diversity of the body of Christ. I've got lots of people I love and disagree with, and I hope you do too. And we'll talk to truth in a minute. Because I also don't believe that being loving means automatically accepting everything, not speaking up about anything, not daring to have the hard conversations, or just we all decide our own truth. I don't believe that either, but we got to lead with love. And here's what's so important to me is... You know, as I wrestle with these things, we, we aren't going to change the very real issues of our world if we operate in the spirit of our world. We've got to come in a different spirit. Amen. Come in a different spirit. Jesus put it this way, John 15, verse 12. He said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Want to talk a high bar? That is it right there. That is the definition of the high bar. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. In other words, true love, Christ-like love, if we are shaped in His image, conformed to His definition and not to the world's, then love is sacrificial, it's not selfish. I remember years ago, uh, you know, You may or may not have liked the movie, but to me, it was tremendously impacting, even as a believer, as a preacher who taught many people about the death and resurrection of Jesus. When I first saw that movie, The Passion of the Christ, it was so confronting for me. I saw it at a pre-release in a room, a very small theater full of pastors. Everyone in the room is like a professional Jesus sharer. We all know the story. We all know how it ends. You know what I'm saying? We all know it. You know, it's... And yet something about it was so confronting to me. And I don't just mean to see it so visually portrayed. Of course, that's confronting. But to me, I was confronted with the sacrificial love of Jesus. With the reality of that that we so easily sanitize today. I remember it got to the end of the movie. And then the credits rolled. Nobody moves. The curtains open. Nobody moves. The lights come on. Super awkward. Nobody moves. Nobody wants to be the first one to move. And tears are streaming down my face. And I'm just whispering over and over. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm sobbing. So confronted with his sacrificial love. And then he says, love like that. Selah. (laughs) See, Ephesians 4 is a famous passage that talks about What I'm doing right now, in the first few verses, in verse 11 of this passage, it talks about how God gave different gifts for the body of Christ, like apostles and prophets, teachers, evangelists, pastors. It talks about that these gifts were given 
for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I'm not doing the ministry. I'm equipping you to do the ministry. And then it says in verse 16, which I want to read, Ephesians 4 verse 16. It says, From Him, from Jesus, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in what? In love. Grows and build. How does the body of Christ, how does the house of God, how does the church grow? It says it grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Each part. Each part does its work. Love is so important because it bonds us, binds us together so that each part can do its work. Your physical body has different parts. Each different part has a different form because it has a different function, but they're part of one body. That's the beauty of the church. The beauty of the church, the bride, the body of Christ, the, we are different parts. And, it, and the scripture says in another passage, the eye shouldn't say to the hand, I have no need of you. We, are, we are, have different parts in different forms, but we are part of one body. We need each other. When one part hurts and when one part suffers, the whole body ought to feel it. Love helps the church celebrate diversity in unity. Isn't that a good thought? Love is what helps us do that. Celebrate our diversity and yet all the same time grow in our unity. You know, one of the fun facts that came out of the survey we did late last year, we just recently got done compiling all the results and one of my favorite statistics out of the whole thing was to discover that we are even more culturally, even more racially diverse as a church than our neighborhoods are. I love that thought because... There's something about heaven on earth when people from all different backgrounds, different generations, different tribes, different tongues, different ends of the political spectrum. There you go. When we can come together and celebrate our diversity in unity together. To me, that's like a picture of kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what heaven's going to be like. Amen. Talk about diversity that we'll see there. It builds itself up in love. And then love leads us to truth. See, truth without love isn't received. But love without truth, I would argue, is not real love at all. Many people are comfortable with the church talking about love. In fact, they wish we would just talk about love. Because mostly when it comes to love, even though we understand it comes from a different place and we believe in a different kind of sacrificial and selfless love. With love, love is often a unifying thing. But the, the world is not nearly so excited about the church talking about truth. Amen. Truth. And maybe understandably so. I laugh not because I laugh in some cynical judgment of the world. If anything, we got more fingers pointing at ourselves as the church for why the world feels that way. Because the church has done sometimes a lousy job of handling of truth. Too much truth without love. You know, it says in John 8 verses 31 to 33. To the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. By the way, he's drawing a line in the sand here. Everybody's been with them. They're hanging out. We're following Jesus. And then he draws this line in the sand. It's like a line of truth. It's confronting. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
You see the relationship between these things? People love to quote the second half. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. Okay, but you know, where does that truth come from? Holding to the teaching of Christ. Being His disciples. And then you will know the truth, and I'll explain shortly what that truth is, and the truth will set you free. And you know what? His, his audience were kind of offended. Look what they say. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants, and we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we shall be set free? Like, who do you think you are? We're not slaves. We're not those foreigners. We're not the Gentiles. We're, we're Abraham's kids. We are free by definition. And yet Jesus seemed to be differing with them on that. You know, what's important to understand is that it's knowledge and obedience together that lead us to freedom, not knowledge alone. If you hold to my teaching, knowledge and obedience, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Knowledge and obedience. We can so easily pride ourselves on knowledge, but you know, it's not what you know that counts. It's what you do with what you know that counts. I think if we were to share this passage with many in our day, people would say the same thing. Free? What do you mean free? I'm an American. What do you mean free? This is the 21st century. What do you mean I got rights? I got a bill of rights. What do you mean I'm free? But we live in a day when many have rejected truth. And they're not experiencing the real, eternal, enduring freedom that Christ is speaking about. We live in a day when many people reject truth. I got my truth. You got yours. They reject truth, especially any kind of absolute truth. Maybe one of the least popular verses of our day would be when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That is like a real hard line in the sand right there. That's not one of those popular verses these days, right? That's what we call absolute truth. We live in a day when people don't like that kind of truth so much. <laughs> a generation ago, if you did a survey... And the, the first question was gender. It was a, a binary response, right? <laughs> Male, female. We live in a day when New York City recognizes 38 genders, right? We live in a different day, a different understanding of truth. Andy did a whole message on freedom in this series. But you know, I believe that true and lasting freedom leads us to a place of truth. You know, and you know let me just say for the record, we believe God's word is truth. I believe this is God-breathed. I believe this is eternal. I believe His words are the words of life for you, a foundation for your soul. In fact, in our statement of belief as a church, we say that the Bible, and only the Bible, is the authoritative word of God. It alone is the final authority in determining all doctrinal truths, and in its original writing, it is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. It's a foundation for my life. Truth. See, relationship, love, should lead us to truth. That's what I found marriage to do. <laughs> leads me to truth. Not always comfortable truth either. It leads me to truth. You know, the Bible calls us, the church, the bride of Christ. And so we are in a covenant relationship founded on love, but leading us to truth. See, even in our earthly relationships, love ought to lead us to truth. To a place where... We can let our guards down or be vulnerable, be real, share our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our hurts, our past. That's what it ought to be. A place where we can be honest with each other as the years have gone on in marriage. Being able to say, I hate it when you squeeze the toothpaste tube that way. In the middle, I know. 
I think she's just been more gracious, and I don't think I've really changed on that one, have I? Yeah. She said she's joined me in squeezing it in the middle. I know. It's a hard truth, people. See, the greater our love, the greater our trust, the greater the truth, and the greater our intimacy. These things go together. If we never moved into truth, I would question if we had real love. If love never brought us to a place of truth, maybe our love has no foundation at all. In fact, Proverbs 15.31 says, Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Life-giving correction. Not all correction is life-giving. Isn't that the truth? But whoever heeds life-giving correction, to me the implication there is this is correction given from a place of love. Given probably from a place of relationship and trust. But it says if we will heed that, we will be at home among the wise. You know, there have been many times in my life when who I am today has been shaped by a moment of truth. Sometimes hard to hear, right? We're blessed as a church that we have different streams in the body of Christ that impact us. Yeah, I like that we're a little difficult to peg down, that we're not quite this and we're not quite that at our church, right? Different flows, different streams, different emphasis. I love that. And, you know, one of those streams, and we, we sang one of their worship songs tonight is Bethel Church in California. And uh, I went for a few years ago for the very first time to a Bethel service. I'd sung the songs, heard the teaching, inspired by what God was doing there, signs and wonders, healings, miracles. But I got to be honest with you, when I went, it was like I knew it was going to be a different kind of experience for me, right? I, I, I'm like more a linear, more a logical, kind of ducks in a row kind of a person. Let's just say Bethel is not that. The ducks will be anywhere but in a row. Let's just say that. The du- the ducks might be spirit dancing in the aisles. Let's say that. And uh, so I, I went to Bethel like a little apprehensive. Like I was excited, but I didn't know what to expect. And to be honest, to be honest, all of my worst fears were confirmed in the first few minutes. <laughs> I was like right out of my depth. So, so we arrive and like we haven't even got started and there's banners being waved. I was like, that's something you don't see at Liberty Church. The guy next to me is like warming up his tambourine. I was like, <sighs> first chord, first song. Some guy comes like leaping down the aisle. He's spirit dancing, but his clothes don't fit him properly. And no one, clearly no one has ever trained this man to dance. I was like, whoa, what is happening there? I was like, okay, eyes, eyes straight ahead, eyes straight ahead. I'm not even exaggerating. This is like exactly how it happened. It's like a perfect storm for me, right in my immediate area. It's like a thousand people worshiping. They get to the first chorus. It's powerful. The worship's beautiful. And then the lady behind me starts shouting. Woo! Woo! She's shouting behind me. I was like, it's like, like I, I, got a, I got a twitch, you know? It's like we're five minutes in. I'm thinking this is a three-day conference. <laughs> What did I do? <laughs> what was I thinking? So, woo, it's behind me. And I'm like, so, I was like, all right, all right, all right, all right. All right focus, focus here, focus. We can do this. And I pray a little prayer. This is exactly how it goes. Pray a little prayer. And I just say, Holy Spirit, I am here for an encounter with you. And I'm not going to let anything distract me. And then the Holy Spirit, like really kindly says back to me, that's good, Paul. 
Yeah. And then there's this long pause. He says, that's good, Paul. Because you don't know what I set her free from. And suddenly in that moment, to the depth of who I was, I, was, I realized my judgment. It's like, you self-righteous, fill in the blank. <laughs> who do you think you are? And I suddenly started to go through all the options in my mind of why she's yelling. and such an irritation to me right now with my little personal space boundaries being violated. She's yelling. How do I know she wasn't rescued from abuse or brought out of human trafficking? How do I know that all the words she has in this world right now to express her love to the God who set her free is, Woo! I'm going to join you. I don't know what we're shouting about. Woo! One of the greatest breakthroughs of my life. And it came from being lovingly confronted with truth. Oh, bueno, don't I wish I grew more from all these comfortable moments than I do the uncomfortable moments. But the Holy Spirit lovingly corrected me in that moment. It was like a chiropractor that just sneaks up on you like, oh, then you realize, oh, wow, I do feel better. But that was, that was intense for a second there. Have you got those people in your life? I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit leading us into all truth, but who have you got walking this journey with you that can call you out at times? Who do you let close enough? (laughs) Who have you loved well enough and trusted enough to let them be that person for you that would open the door for truth? And it's not always a challenge. Oftentimes for me, it's been correction or direction. But sometimes... I've lost my way. I've lost my hope. I've lost my courage. And I needed somebody to speak loving truth to me. He's good. He's a good, good father. I needed somebody to remind me who I am and who he is. You know, I've come to realize that a relationship isn't proven till it's tested. And you know, sometimes we can think all is well, but sometimes it takes a moment of truth in a relationship when we disagree. We see things differently. A moment of truth when we're confronted with something about ourselves, some bias, some, diff- some way of seeing that we didn't even recognize until someone in a moment of truth would share with us a different perspective. But that is how you and I change. Loving moments of truth. See, because not only does love build a bridge for truth, I would go so far as to say, that to withhold truth is not an act of love at all. Sometimes we would like to convince ourselves that it's the loving thing to do, to withhold some uncomfortable, difficult truth. And and look, there's wisdom, and I haven't got time to teach about that, because there's a time and a place, right? But to withhold truth in the end is not an act of love at all, which is no wonder that our earthly court systems even recognize that. They get you to put your hand on a Bible and say, I, I swear to tell the truth, but not just the truth, the whole truth. And nothing but the truth, so help me God. Truth, what a powerful thing. That's how people change. Look at the Apostle Paul and the letters he wrote to his churches that he clearly deeply loved. I mean, he expresses his love. I mean, thinking of you, I wanted to come to you. I, my heart breaks for you. I pray for you every day. I love you. And then he'd drop some truth bomb on them. <laughs> Confront some heresy, some error. Some, you know, love didn't cause him to withhold truth. It 
compelled him to share truth from love, from love, from love. See, it says in John 18, verses 33 to 38, this passage is the conversation between Pilate and Jesus. Jesus is literally on trial for his life here on the way to the cross. And they have this interchange about truth. John 18, 33 says, Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And listen to Pilate's response. What is truth? What is truth? retorted Pilate. And with this he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for charge against him. And they crucified him anyway. What is truth? I feel like that could be the sentiment of our generation. What is truth? You got your truth, I got mine. What is truth? Well, truth incarnate was standing right before him in the flesh. Truth was right there. He's talking to truth because the point is he asked the wrong question. Did you get that? He asked the wrong question. He said, what is truth? But the question should have been, who is truth? Because truth was right there in that moment with loving eyes, looking at him, interacting with him. And truth is right here and right now, looking at you just the same. Truth is a person. Truth is a person. And that's why our great hope for you doesn't start with making a difference. It starts with following Jesus. Follow Jesus. Thrive in community. Make a difference. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Church Podcast. If you are in New York City or will be visiting the New York area soon, please be our guest on Sunday. For service times and locations, please visit libertychurchnyc.com.